welcome back for another episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss anything just outside the norm, ranging from the bizarre and unexplained to the supernatural and paranormal and everything in between. I'm your host, Sean, joined by my fellow host, Ethan, and Eric. So this is our second Strange Matters Science episode. We have three interesting topics to discuss today. First, the Large Hadron Collider. So Eric, why don't you take off here? All right, so what exactly is the Large Hadron Collider? So the Large Hadron Collider is the biggest machine in the world. It's a particle accelerator buried 100 meters underground and located in Geneva, Switzerland. It's essentially just a giant racetrack about 27 kilometers in circumference, and it accelerates particles such as protons using electromagnets to a velocity pretty close to that of the speed of light, and then basically just smashes the particles together. Now, it, it's a is a circular track, right? Exactly. And what okay. it does is it, it gets two beams of electrons going in different directions and then merges the beams together and the particles co- collide, basically. Okay. So by smashing these particles together hard and fast enough, they're basically broken into much smaller sub-part- subparticles that are so unstable that they exist only for a brief period of time. As you can imagine, the possibility for physicists are nearly endless with this sort of an experiment. It's like having a scientist go into a candy store, and basically it produces all kinds of different exotic particles and matter. So is this where they can like identify like quarks and stuff like that? I think quarks are still theoretical, but... Okay. I can get into this later with my uh, a category or my topic. Uh, it discusses some things that... Uh the Large Hadron Collider actually produces. Okay, cool. So, yeah, we'll get into that later. So, it's believed that the Large Hadron Collider could either reveal the secrets to the universe or be the end of it, as some people believe that this doomsday device has the potential to create miniature black holes. That's uh, one hell of a 50-50 chance there. Exactly. It It could either be really great or really sucky. Yeah. But odds are we wouldn't know what hit us. So anyways, what scientists are hoping to find using the Large Hadron Collider is known as the Higgs boson. I believe it's pronounced boson. (laughs) No, okay, sorry. So wait, what is the Higgs boson? Well, basically, it's a theoretical elementary particle of the standard theory that is supposed to answer the question, why does matter have mass? It's also known as the God particle. And some physicists believe that discovery of the Higgs boson would lead to destruction of the space-time continuum. So what is that? Like, time would stop or, like, the universe would explode? I think the latter. Okay. Like, matter would just collapse on itself or something? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, if you can imagine a tear in the space-time continuum basically would form a black hole and it would kind of suck everything into it, I guess, and all existence would just collapse in on itself. Okay. That's pretty scary. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The the sound of uh, the universe being destroyed or anything like that, uh, end of existence, yeah, that's never fun. I certainly agree. But something tells me this sort of cataclysmic event would happen so quickly that no one would even really know what happens. You would hope so. Otherwise, so, like, you know, the Earth would tear itself in half. and It definitely would not be a slow death. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know then. <laughs> so uh, what's been happening with the Large Hadron Collider? What kind of research have they been doing? Any experiments, things like that? Well, the fact of the matter is that the Large Hadron Collider really has been having a lot of trouble getting off the ground and getting things going. So it's been experiencing some bizarre and unexplained malfunctions over the past few years. This multi-billion dollar particle accelerator was supposed to be launched in 2008. However, during a test run, it actually overheated and malfunctioned. So in 2009, one of the supercooled magnets overheated. And when scientists went to diagnose the problem, they found that actually what had happened was a piece of baguette had been dropped into the magnet by a bird. And it like <laughs> landed on an electrical panel and caused a short. Wait, I thought this thing was like buried underground. It is, which is part of the strange, which is what makes it so strange. I was gonna say, did a bird somehow like fly down like a ten-story elevator shaft or something? Yeah, that's that's a possibility. That's probably the more likely explanation. Or, or is this kind of like Star Wars, where uh, you know you, you find that two-meter hole, 
while driving through the Death Star, and you were able to drop a couple lasers down there, down the shaft, and then all hell breaks loose. I don't think it works that way with baguettes. <laughs> Wait, wouldn't it be more likely that some technician just it fell out of his mouth, and they just blamed it on a bird so he wouldn't be fired? I mean, how did they know a bird dropped a baguette? <laughs> all right, I'm get, I'm about to talk about all of this. Okay. Um, <laughs> Carry on. So there was another scandal that broke the news that uh, CERN was later scandalized for, and that was that one of the Large Hadron Collider scientists actually approached Al-Qaeda for work and was somehow tied to terrorism. So basically, CERN and the Large Hadron Collider are kind of getting a bad rap by the media. So additionally, other events have occurred to stop the discovery of the Higgs boson, including Congress in the United States canceling a multi-billion dollar project through a similar experiment, uh, another particle accelerator that had hoped to find the Higgs boson. It was just mysteriously canceled by Congress. So do we have a particle accelerator of kind of similar we do in the U.S.? We do. Okay. The only thing about the Large Hadron Collider <laughs> is that it's the biggest one in the world, so it okay. gets all the notoriety. Okay, gotcha. Where is ours located? Under Area 51. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps these seemingly unexplained malfunctions are more than simply an unfortunate series of coincidences. So as you can see, it's kind of been the perfect storm for all these experiments to try and find the Higgs boson. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the conspiracy that exists about these experiments. So two established physicists, one Danish physicist who is known as Dr. Holger Beck Nielsen, and then Dr. Masao Ninomiya from Japan, believe that the Large Hadron Collider is being sabotaged by an individual from the future who wishes to protect the Earth from observing this mysterious particle known as the Higgs boson. Yes, I mean, right off the bat, you would think that that's a pretty crazy argument, but just that you have two extremely smart physicist doctors saying it gives a little bit more levity to their claims. Exactly. And they're not just saying it, they actually published a paper about their theory. But they claimed that creation of the Higgs boson would be so abhorrent to nature that it could ripple backward through time and stop the collider before it could create one, and that they have the mathematics to support this theory. This situation has been compared to the grandfather paradox, where someone goes back in time to kill their grandfather. While killing your grandfather in the past is a paradoxical conundrum, going back in time to save him from being hit by a bus is not, and this is the situation that it's being compared to. So yeah, the grandfather's paradox is when you you go back in time and then you end up killing your grandfather. The ultimate conclusion to that is because you kill him, you don't exist, therefore, in the future. Exactly. And if you don't exist in the future, how did you exist to kill your grandfather? So the paradox kind of goes on and on in a downward spiral. So when these claims hit the media, the Large Hadron Collider admin began receiving all kinds of hate mail and phone calls from scared spectators demanding that the experiment be halted for fear that this would somehow destroy the universe in some calamitous accident. So in April of 2011... A strangely dressed man was found snooping around in bins at the Large Hadron Collider. Eloy Cole, when arrested, claimed to be from the future and said that he had come back in time to sabotage the Large Hadron Collider. Did they do a uh, a, a drug test on him? They did not, actually. Okay. I mean, that just sounds like something a, like a crazy homeless person would say try to, to try to get out of being arrested or something. I definitely agree. However, he did have a pretty steady story going and he was dressed pretty nicely so his, his stuff checked out exactly so his plan was to interrupt the mountain dew supply to one of the vending machines that was <laughs> supposed to be the fuel for the cern physicist genius so they uh weren't coffee or monster guys they like the mountain dew they like that code red baby <laughs> so when arrested he was digging through some trash cans looking for fuel for his time machine is that also Mountain Dew? <laughs> when arrested, he was digging through some trash cans looking for fuel for his time machine that some say resembled an ordinary blender. 
When questioned, he stated, The discovery of the Higgs boson led to limitless power, the elimination of poverty, and Kit Kats for everyone. It is a communist chocolate hellhole, and I'm here to stop it from ever happening. And they they didn't drug test him? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to talk a little bit at the end about what happened to him. That's kind of mysterious and makes things seem a little bit more legitimate. Yeah, it's just very strange. It is certainly very strange. I almost thought it was complete bogus, but... Professor Brian Cox, who's a CERN physicist, dismissed the claim, stating that he's harmless enough, and at least he didn't mention any bloody black holes, were his exact words. However, when the individual, Eloy Cole, was whisked off and thrown into a mental health facility in Geneva, he shortly thereafter disappeared from his cell, baffling the police. Yeah, that's, that's pretty strange. It is very strange, and that part went totally unexplained. But nobody seemed particularly concerned about it. Yeah. I was going to say, if you, if you just think of some crazy dude, you're probably not going to care too much when he when he leaves. All right. So apparently this individual claimed that he had the ability to time travel. So let's discuss this possibility of time traveling. So number one, and obviously, is, I mean, does the fact that people from the future who are trying to stop the Large Hadron Collider mean that we already survived to make it to the future in the first place? So I mean, this thing was built and supposedly did do some kind of horrible thing. You know, apparently there's still people around in the future to know about it. Exactly. So basically, if somebody's coming back from the future, then the future has to exist for there to be people to come back from. Right. To save us in the past. Right. So it's almost like instead of trying to correct the past, they're trying to like create an ultimate alternate timeline or something i mean are they expecting to go back in time change it and come back and everything is completely different exactly and if they were going to create an alternate timeline then why would they care about our timeline to begin with yeah so basically what's the point of trying to sabotage the large hedron collider if it's not even going to affect you in the future anyways exactly yeah so they're kind of just hoping that they can create a alternate reality where at least those people are happy or something. Perhaps. The other thought is if we're all staying on the same timeline, if these time travelers fail to sabotage the Large Hadron Collider and we eventually did discover the Higgs boson, would they, in the future, just cease to exist? Right. Because the Earth would theoretically be destroyed. Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the Back to the Future, or the Family Guy episodes where they do time travel it's you, you correct the past and all of a sudden the future people start to fade out or something just because exactly. you're erasing their timeline yeah. yeah could we be hanging or you know going down a bad road here and then yeah, the people are from the future are coming back to prevent us from achieving what eventually we can't uh achieve which then leads to the future mind blown <laughs> i'll say i'm pretty sure we could create a whole episode of just debating time travel we might end up doing that later on the, the line but that's that's just a, a small element to this particular case so why i guess my question throughout this whole thing is why is the discovery of the higgs boson actually so dangerous i don't know if you guys know or yeah i mean looked at it a little bit i mean currently we, we don't know what it is but i mean if we did we probably wouldn't be trying to do it if we knew it was dangerous you know it's one of those things where it's like theorized or we're trying to achieve it but we don't know what the consequences are going to be until we actually examine it or, 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 or prove it for real. Good thought, Sean. So maybe we can talk about some possible explanations for this strange conspiracy, this belief that this guy came from the future to sabotage the Large Hadron Collider. So some people actually believe that this story of a futuristically dressed time traveler was an attempt to distract the media from a far more sinister plot. Now, is there, like, pictures of this man or, like, security footage, or is it just all from, like, the, the police reports? There actually are pictures. Um, the The actual story is not in debate. What's really in debate is the, legitis- the legitimacy of his claims. Right. So what was he actually from the future? Was he an actor? Who knows? The, the fact of the matter is that, that CERN had been getting a lot of bad press lately because of all the theories out there about creating black holes. People basically didn't want to have anything to do with CERN. Right, yeah, I remember all the news and stuff when that they were first getting that thing online. 
they were making a, a big stink about, you know, what if this thing creates a black hole and rips the Earth apart? All right, so, I mean, obviously this is an interesting theory that some time traveler, but I think probably the simplest explanation is also the most likely. I know I, I usually take that stance, but, I mean, in my theory, after looking into this case, I think he's probably just some either crazy person. Like I said before, like, he just seemed like a homeless guy or just some guy who had some kind of mental breakdown and started spouting that out that he was from the future and that he was trying to poison their Mountain Dew supply. I mean, that, that just doesn't sound like a logical, sane person to me. So yeah, I'm just kind of thinking that it was just either some guy who was just off his rocker and just got caught by security and made up a crazy story and it just got blown out of proportion. I agree. That definitely seems like a logical explanation, um, especially considering some of his claims and the fact that he was carrying around a blender. However, that would not explain his disappearance from the mental health facility. And keep in mind, these mental health facilities, they're not jails. He's not locked into a cell. However, there is a fair amount of observation going, and it's they're not difficult to get out of. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I don't think he wasn't in a like uh, high-security lockdown for like the Kremlin insane. Exactly. So I don't think that, you know, either he had the means to escape or he had a, you know, he was able to flash back and be lucid for a minute and be like, oh, I got to get out of here. And, you know, he regained his senses and was able to escape pretty easily. Yeah. Any thoughts for you, Ethan? Maybe some possible explanations? I mean, another possible explanation is what we mentioned earlier is, you know, could someone possibly come from the future because we're, we're onto something detrimental to our possible existence in the future and they're coming back to you know try to stop this try to prevent us from reaching the higgs boson or something else that we're not quite sure of at this moment yeah i mean that's that's the more interesting philosophy but you would think that if that was real they would have sent a more competent person who had a better plan than poisoning their mountain dew supply (laughs) well that's true but the thing is two of these physicists have a legitimate paper published about this theory so it's not just complete and utter bs uh, maybe so some people are, do legitimately believe this maybe they're trying to send someone though that's you know doesn't have the appearance of being competent therefore you don't really know that they're, they're from the future okay i just i just had a thought what if this guy there was two people sent from the future and this bumbling idiot was the decoy and so uh, everyone's focused on him. The real guy, you know, slips in, cuts a few wires, and, you know, the the pro- the program is delayed for a year. That's a legitimate explanation. Okay, we solved it. <laughs> there it is. Well, yeah, we, we, we solved that strange science mystery. <laughs> so that's it for the story of the Large Hadron Collider conspiracy. Uh, next, Sean, let's hear a little bit about your strange science. All right, so what I'm going to be talking about today almost sounds like a story for a bad horror movie or science fiction, and that is head transplants. So basically, this idea started in 1812 when a French physiologist hypothesized that a head could theoretically be kept alive in isolation from its body by maintaining a steady supply of blood to the head. Now, however, this hypothesis was not tested until 1857, when a Dr. Charles Brown Sequois lopped off the head of a dog, drained the blood, and then after 10 minutes injected fresh blood back into the arteries. And he did report signs of life displaying what appeared to be voluntary movements uh, around the face. And this continued for a few more minutes until, obviously, the head once again died for real. So, I mean, not too much of a breakthrough. He just pumped in you know, fresh blood into a chopped-off head. So those were the more simple experiments, but obviously as time and medical technology went on, these experiments grew more advanced. So there is a Soviet scientist named Vladimir Demikov, and he was one of the leading pioneers in organ transplant surgeries. And he was actually one of the first, if not the first, who was able to successfully transplant heart and lungs and animals, leading the way for human transplants later on. It's interesting. That's actually something that's done all the time these days. So basically, if you destroy your kidneys or your liver... Uh, you can just buy some new ones. Yeah, pretty much. So, in fact, Christian Bernard, who most people know him as the man who performed the very first heart transplant surgery, considered Demikoff one of his greatest mentors and inspirations. 
and Vladimir Demikhov also performed a lot of other crazy experiments later on that aren't as widely accepted, uh, but they definitely are very interesting, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So in several experiments in the 1950s and 60s, this Soviet scientist created a two-headed dog hybrid-like creature. So Demikhov did this by grafting the head and forelegs of a small puppy-like dog onto the neck of a larger host dog. In preparation for the surgery, an extra heart was implemented into the host doggy a week before, as well as making changes to the lung structure to make room for the extra organ. So once again, this brings me to one of my favorite... God uh, bless. <laughs> one of my favorite uh, kind of future theories is double organs. <laughs> I would like to see the ability of double organs in humans, but uh, we'll talk about that at a, a later episode, perhaps. This reminds me a little bit of our bionics episode. Yeah, that definitely. That that ties in. We'll, we'll get to that later on. I'm glad you brought that up. So anyway, back to the experiment. The heart and lungs were removed from the smaller dog. Uh, basically, it was cut in half. And then finally, the two heads would be attached together. All in all, once Demikhov perfected the surgery, and it, it took him a while to really get the, the hang of things. So once he perfected it, the experiment took less than four hours. So what was the lifespan of these double-headed dogs? Yeah, lifespan kind of ranged. The one of the more famous dogs that there's a lot of pictures of was only lasted around four days, but the longest lasting one I think was not 29 days, so it almost lasted a month. That's interesting. Normally, it's, it seems like they only last a few days because of something called graft versus host disease, and this is a pretty common issue with transplant patients. So actually what's happening is that the immune system of the transplanted organ is attacking the host itself. And so this is why we have so many patients on immune right. suppression drugs. So this kind of keeps the patients from rejecting the old organs. Exactly. Yeah. There's one uh, article in the Time magazine, and it has you know pictures of, those, of this two-headed dog. And it actually died, I think, uh, in its sleep. The arteries or something got strangled off. So it actually, I think, died of like strangulation rather than the small dog being rejected by the host. So, so how is that feasibly possible? You know, you when you think of a transplant, now you say double organs, you just add extra stuff in there. But right. when it comes to a head, how how is that working in the system? Like, are you still... Well, basically, so like I said earlier, in the larger host dog, they changed like the, the structure of the organs and they transplanted an extra heart um, for the upcoming procedure. And then what they did is basically they chopped the little puppy dog in half, kind of slowly, like one at a time, re like cut and then reattached blood vessels into the host. Right. And then remove the heart and lungs from that dog. And basically, it's just like a head, and then it's front little forepaw. So, and then they just grafted it like onto the side of the large dog. So they're kind of just like they're adding an extra head, right? So, are they cutting off the lines or the blood vessels to the original head, and then reattaching them to the yeah exactly yes yeah they they're pretty much like one at a time. They just cut blood vessels and then like immediately reattach it to blood vessels leading into the secondary heart and to the host dog. So the original head becomes just a, like an abnormal growth, pretty much. No, I mean, both dogs are still alive. They're just now sharing the same... They're basically just, you know, one... The smaller dog is just a growth off of the host okay, dog. Okay, okay, I got it now. Right. So it's pretty amazing and strange to think about that. At the times that this surgery was done in the 50s, that they, create, that they could create a two-headed dog successfully... But at the same time, we couldn't, we didn't have the ability to transplant heart or kidneys or any major organs in humans. It is pretty crazy, but I mean, if you think about it, humans are a lot more complex than just a dog. That's true. And once again, there's less uh, ethical impacts for experimenting on d dogs and humans. Definitely. Um, so, like I said earlier, these double-headed dogs remained completely fully functional. Both heads could see, smell, hear, and eat. There are even videos that you can look up online of this bizarre experiment. You know, you can see the dogs being, you know, feeding and stuff. The warning that some, especially dog lovers, may find this video pretty weird and disturbing. But it is up there just for the curious. So my question is, when I first heard about this case is, you know, 
what is the purpose? You know, what do you get when you're like, I'm going to create a two-headed dog? I think it's pretty obvious. You have a pretty awesome <laughs> pet. <laughs> that, yeah, that's Two like... pets, even. <laughs> that's twice the food, though. Unless, you know, you don't have and to look over poop. two. They're all right there together. So you don't have to, you know, wonder where one is while the other one's right there and vice versa. Exactly. They're, they're both right there. I guess you only need to train the big dog how to, like, sit and stay because the small dog can't go anywhere. Although he does make, he does kind of throw off the balance of the big dog. It makes it a little more difficult to do stuff, but. That's true. Another thing, more seriously, I think this kind of research paved the way for human organ and tissue transplant. Without doing these kinds of experiments on dogs, we never would have been able to do what we can today with, you know, kidney transplants, liver, lung, anything. Yeah, yeah, obviously like the the organ transplants that Demikoff was able to do in, in dogs kind of led to them being able to happen in humans. It was just, I don't see, at the time, I didn't see what the application was for why put another head on a fully functional dog. Satisfying curiosity. Yeah, I guess, just seeing how far you can push science. And likely in the future, this is going to lead to some far more interesting and abstract creations, I'd imagine. Yeah, exactly. So I'm basically, people had these same questions. You know, why are you, why are you making these two-headed dogs? So when he was asked about why he was doing these experiments and what purposes that he could find in these transplant surgeries for human application, the Dr. Demikoff stated in a quote, to apply our knowledge in saving human lives, we will begin by establishing a tissue bank. It will eventually include every conceivable part of the human anatomy, eyeballs, livers, kidneys, hearts, even limbs. When we are fully prepared, an accident victim will be brought in with a normal fatal injury to get some essential organs. We will try to provide him with a necessary organ from our bank. If the transplant is successful, he lives. If not, better luck next time. And I think in theory, this sounds like a really great idea, but it's nowhere close to what we have today. Instead, there's basically a surplus of patients needing transplants and a deficiency in available organs. Exactly. And when he was asked, you know, how, where are you going to get all these organs? Uh, it's kind of a callous manner, but he basically said, you know, I think it was in Moscow, Russia. He's like, you know, we have thousands of homeless or just degenerate people dying every day. So they were just planning on harvesting the organs from them. Obviously, I mean, this plan doesn't come to fruition, but he did have a plan to actually harvest and collect all these extra organs. So those experiments were happening in Russia in the 50s and 60s, and that's going to lead right into the next set of so-called you know, head replacement, and that is about the monkey head reattachment experiments. So in 1970, a Dr. Robert White, who was inspired by Demikov's earlier work, led a team that successfully transplanted the head of one monkey onto another monkey's body. So unlike Demikov's rather simple and quick surgery that after he perfected, you know, only lasted three to four hours, this monkey head switch surgery took a team of 30 surgeons and lasted a grueling 18 hours to complete. Now the experiments were partially successful, as the reattached head was alive after the surgery and had uses of all its senses, so it could still see and smell and hear, and one of the monkeys even managed to bite a finger of the surgical team after it was fully awoken. Now, however, because the spine was severed when they were cutting off the head and moving it onto another body, the spine was severed, and obviously the monkey was paralyzed from the neck down. The experimental monkeys survived no longer than nine days, and they usually died of immunorejection. So kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, the host body was rejecting the graft head. Now, later on in the 90s, Dr. Robert White actually started preparing to take this experiment to the next level, and he wanted to perform these experiments on humans. And he had openly stated that if he could perfect a successful head transplant surgery, that he could use it to help the likes of, you know, at the time, actor Christopher Reeve, who's paralyzed, and the famous scientist Stephen Hawking. Now, of course, he still had limitations, mostly that the fact that the surgery would most likely still result in a full-body paralysis, and that, like his experiments, the risk of patients dying of immunorejection was still very high. I think this is pretty interesting. It's basically everyone's fantasy. Why not just put my brain, before I die at an old age, into the body of a young 19-year-old and let me start my life over from scratch? I mean, if this ever comes to actually happen, I can't wait to see how people will abuse their bodies in the future. But pretty soon, we would be 
funneling all kinds of money into Medicare to pay for this sort of medical procedure for anybody who wants to have it. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of ethics that come with that, though. Right, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. And like you were saying, it's one of Dr. Robert White's kind of other areas of expertise was, like, freezing. So it's like he kind of was hand-in-hand where, you know, if you die, they could freeze your head. And then later on, when there's a body available, you know, unfreeze it and stick it on there. And then, bam, you're a new person. So, you know, obviously, these experiments have some extreme ethical concerns in the U.S. But Dr. White was confident that his friendly connections to some hospitals in Russia and some other countries would allow for him to do this work. That if he could get the surgery right using cadavers as practice. Now, unfortunately, Dr. White died in 2010. So obviously he won't be continuing this, but you know perhaps that a a young doctor now will be inspired by his works, just like Dr. White was inspired by the experiments of Vladimir Demikov, and just continue the work in head transplant surgeries. Yeah, so like as we was talking about earlier with the ethics, I mean, what do you what do you guys think of the ramifications would be if someone would actually try to take this hand, head transplant surgeries and apply it to humans? I mean, the question is, like, you mentioned about 19-year-old bodies and then, you know, placing your organs or your brain into a fresh body or anything like that. I mean, where exactly is this 19-year-old body coming from? That That's my biggest thing here when it comes with ethics is, is this a 19-year-old that died some, you know, tragic death, like either a car accident or something like that, and then you're, you know, transporting, I mean, the organs are still fine. But right. then you're transporting yeah. or transplanting your brain into that body, or is this some I mean medically would... generated nineteen uh, year old body, like based on stem cells or something like that? That yeah, uh, like a, a clone right. kind of thing, like some science fiction movie. Yeah, or it could just be like you know, organ donation today. You have to sign up for it and put a little thing on your driver's license, and if it's on there, they get to harvest your body. <laughs> So, so they they take your entire body and then remove your brain and place a a new one in there and it's somebody else's for the rest of their life and then I mean that's it for you. Well, I mean I don't think you can if you transplant your brain into another person's skull. I would assume that you it would be you who took over. No, no, no I mean that's what I mean. Like Eric said, it, it's taking about organ donor to the max where you know if you pass you're donating your entire body minus your brain right yeah that yeah that's true but i guess you can kind of i guess it depends on how you die also whether you could select to either have your organs harvested or to have your whole body be put up for kind of like a vessel exactly yeah i mean also probably depend that the the state of your body. I mean, it's probably easier to har- harvest a few healthy organs than to determine if your whole body is healthy enough to stick another head onto it. <laughs> and also, it's pre- it's pretty weird to think of an 80 year old head on a 20 year old body. I don't think that would go over too well. Now, is this kind of you know we mentioned the dog transplant, uh, but you know the two heads were still there. Is it going to be the same for the humans? Is it going to be two heads on one body, or are they actually going to you know cleave? the the original head off i would assume at this point they just chop off the original head and then just stick on your head onto there mm-hmm. i would definitely want to live the rest of my life with a dead useless <laughs> head attached to my neck hey, i'm just saying that would be awesome <laughs> i might just go ahead and kill myself after the end of that surgery <laughs> this is uh i have another thought that i think ethan you brought up when we did our bioprinting episode is you know you start changing out your organs or your limbs for different or artificial ones. I mean, if you're transplanting your head onto another body, like, are you still actually you? Yeah, yeah. Or my, are you yeah. just a completely different... My point in uh, the bioprinting bionics episode was, yeah, if you if you start just for the hell of it because, you know, you have the technology now, say you have, like, a bad knee or a bad arm, and then... You know, go internally if you have bad kidneys, bad heart, bad lungs. If you start replacing all these things, when do you stop becoming you and then you're becoming somebody else? Because, yeah. I mean, every part that you remove, you're losing a part of yourself. Yeah. Basically, my comeback to that, or one of my points in that same episode was a lot of the times when you talk about immortality, it's the human brain that is the limit. 
So obviously, you know, you can be an 80-year-old person and you do this successful transplant onto a 20-year-old body. I mean, most likely you're not going to live another 80 years. You know, you, the, that person's brain is going to fall apart long before the body does. So I think until we can perfect ways to preserve the human mind, be able to keep it from deteriorating, that there's really no point into doing this kind of surgery. And the last thing is just taking it one step further is maybe in 100, 100 or 200 years, this will just be a completely elective surgery. You know, you could go body shopping and pick out, you know, it's like instead of being your new year resolution that you want to lose 20 pounds, you just go to the body shop and say like, oh, I'll, I'll go into size six and just transplant me into that body. No, that, 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 yeah, that's uh, that's in Walmart in the future, aisle 10. About, exactly. Well, yeah. I believe that's where it is. Aisle 10. I like it. <laughs> yeah. And you can pay it off over 15 years, 0% interest. There you go. Same as cash. Exactly. All right, so that's the end of my bizarre science story. So last but not least, Ethan has his own story to tell. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about black holes and specifically that black holes have hair. I put that uh, hair in air quotes. In a new paper published on January 5th, by Stephen Hawking, the physicist has proposed that black holes may have a luxurious head of hair made up of zero-energy particles that store information of objects that uh, it eventually devours. So you say zero-energy, right? I do say zero-energy. So according to Einstein's equation E equals mc squared, if there's zero-energy, I guess that means they must also be zero mass too, right? Uh, yes. I mean, when I'm talking zero energy particles, it's kind of, it. Th- I mean, they're light particles. They, so, so it's basically like radiation, basically. Correct. Okay. So, yes, this proposal though does not prove that all information is preserved as one of these objects, whether it's a star or whatever, is enveloped by the black hole. The million-dollar question is whether all the information is stored in this way, and we have made no claims about that, says a study author, uh, Andrew Strominger, a physicist at Harvard University. It seems unlikely that the kind of hair that uh, has been described is rich enough to store all this information that it uh, envelops. So a little history about black holes. The common conception that most of us uh, have of black holes is that uh, it comes from Einstein's theory of relativity that describes a black hole as an extremely dense celestial body that warps space and time so strongly that no light or matter can escape from it once it has been devoured. Right. So there's a thing about the black hole called the event horizon, and this is basically your point of no return. So if you get too close to the black hole and you actually cross over the event horizon... Basically, you're screwed. You're going down like a sack of potatoes. Right. I mean, yes, and I mentioned the event horizon later on in this discussion, but yeah, Eric, you're exactly correct on that uh, postulate. So, in the 1960s, a physicist by the name of John Wheeler proposed that black holes have no hair. Uh, In layman's terms, this means that black holes were void of any complex particulate matter. Uh, Wheeler also formulated that all black holes were the same minus their spin, angular momentum, and mass. So they they are identical besides these three properties. So basically, if you throw any sort of matter into a black hole, the only thing that's going to be remembered is the total mass, because we know that all mass is conserved, right? And it's state of rotation, basically. Is that right? No, I mean... the. When it comes to black holes, everything is the same according to Wheeler, except their spin, angular momentum, and mass. So, I mean, things, different black holes uh, envelop different things, so their their, uh, their masses could be different based on this. Or Are we on the same page on that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in the so that was the 1960s. In the 1970s, uh, Stephen Hawking then postulated something that is now known in the science realm as Hawking radiation. 
uh, Hawking radiation states that black holes leak mass over time in the form of quantum particles. So I was researching this radiation a little bit, and Hawking kind of describes it as being explained by the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So if a particle is in a small black hole, then you can know its location pretty well, given that it's, it's within this small black hole. Um, therefore, according to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, you can't know its speed accurately, and it can therefore be more than that of light. And if it's faster than light, then it's able to escape the black hole. However, a large black hole becomes more difficult to know the location, and therefore the speed becomes more well-defined, and the chances of it exceeding the speed of light go down. So if a black hole is very small, it leaks a lot of energy in the form of radiation, and so a small black hole can produce enough energy to basically power every electrical device on Earth. How would we harness that energy? That's an excellent question, because we can't really get a black hole and contain it because it would fall right through the center of the earth and swallow us up. However, there are some theories out there that if we could contain a black hole in some of the outer dimensions, that we would somehow be able to harness this power that way. But it makes sense, though, uh, ba- you know, just in simplistic terms, that, you know, small black holes have a better chance of emitting these uh, particles or forms of energy than large black holes. I mean, large black holes, yeah, that stuff can get lost deep in that thing, while uh, the, sm- the smaller black holes, you have the less volume, I guess you could say, and better chance of escaping. So uh, eventually these black holes evaporate, leaving a vacuum in its place. Now, the problem with this notion is that if a black hole or black holes are losing matter over time and therefore are losing information over time, how can we then gather data on the celestial objects that uh, form these black holes to begin with? So I have another quote here from uh, Strominger. He says that, Yet this notion creates a paradox because on the smallest scale, the laws of physics are completely reversible meaning information that existed in the past should theoretically be recoverable. So uh, that's a little bit on the black holes uh, in general. Now onto a thing called black hole snowflakes. Research has been conducted since uh, the debunking of some of these notions and has come up with an accepted result. What happens when you add a soft photon or particle of light that contains no energy, we're talking the zero energy particles from before, or uh, soft gravitons, quantum particles that transmit gravity to a vacuum left behind a black hole. Though these particles have been never, or have never been detected, they are believed to be ubiquitous or all around us. So, as... Eric mentioned with his Large Hadron Collider, these collisions that his subatomic particles are making produces an infinite number of these soft photons and soft gravitons. When working through equations uh, involving these photons and gravitons, it was found that these vacuums left behind by black holes contain the same amount of energy, however their angular momentum would change after the addition of one of these soft photons. This means that the vacuum state of an evaporated black hole is kind of like a snowflake with its own individual properties based on what had created it and its own history. So my understanding was that Hawking actually postulated that these objects have history and that the history determines its state. So in the case of a black hole, there exists two possible histories. Either it exists or it doesn't exist. So from the outside, you can't reliably determine whether it actually exists or not. So therefore, there's always a chance that it doesn't. So there's a very, very small chance that if you throw information into it, the information will possibly come out on the other side unchanged. More likely, it'll come out on the other side uninterpretable because the odds are that the black hole does exist. So it's kind of like taking a CD and smashing it up with a hammer all the information still there. You just can't really get any information out of it. Right. It's, it's not exactly 
you know, a wormhole per se, where you're sending stuff in on one side and then it's coming out on the other. What these black holes or what they're describing is at the cusp of the black hole, there's these hairs that when a black hole is capturing something or uh, devouring it, it uh, some information is getting stored on these hairs at the beginning of the black hole that could maybe eventually be gathered up and we could determine what has actually gone inside that black hole. So this new work is an extension of a short paper Hawking put out in 2014, which argued that the event horizon which we mentioned earlier, or the point of no return before an object would be swallowed into a black hole forever, may not be a fixed boundary. This uh, new paper uh, posits that hairs of soft photons and gravitons fringe a black hole's event horizon. So, like I just mentioned, you know, we're not talking about objects being transmitted through a black hole and coming out on another end. We're talking as it's being devoured, some of this energy or some of these uh, particles or information is being stored at the very beginning before uh, it goes to the point of no return. So I guess in theory, these soft photons and gravitons would have to be massless. So they would have to be massless in order to travel faster than the speed of light, according to the Einstein theory of physics. Right. So the information that these hairs contain are all scrambled up, however. Like Eric mentioned with his smashing of a CD. I mean, it's all right there, but it's hard to interpret. So it's basically like if you had a kind of copier machine before a shredder. Like you put some kind of paper with information, it gets copied, and then it gets shredded. So you, you know, the information's stored in there, but the original is all gone. Right. It, to, to even compound that, it's kind of like, uh, you know, making a copy of a paper, destroying the original, and then sending that copy into a shredder, and then mixing, you know, with other papers and stuff like that, and then, you know, mixing all of that up and then trying to decipher exactly what you just put in there. Right. So, as alluded to earlier, information may be, may be stored on these hair-like structures on the cusp of the black hole, but in no shape and form means that all information can be found here. So, as I mentioned at the very beginning, there's a possibility that some information is stored, but it's not proven that all information that goes into the black hole or all objects that go into the black hole end up on these hair-like structures. Maybe only some of that ends up there. So obviously a lot more research needs to be done on this matter, but it opens the door to a bunch of possibilities and gives a deeper understanding of black holes than we may have originally thought. So you say like these hairs can store information, or potentially. So, I mean, what good does that do us? I mean, are we supposed to, how do, how do we access the stored information or so basically if the black hole can store this information then that means that it's possible to come out on the other side of the black hole if it were a wormhole intact basically so if we were to f fly some special spaceship into the black hole and this information was somehow retained we could come out on the other side in a different reality all right i mean that's definitely a possibility I don't know exactly what the current science or abilities we have today, how we would go about collecting this, uh, I mean, because it's stored as photons and gravitons, apparently. So I don't know how exactly we would extract that, because there, there has to be a way that we get close enough to extract that, and when the black hole then just envelop that means... <laughs> And then we're back to square one of figuring out how to collect that information that was just collected or the instrument that we sent there. We still have a long ways to go of figuring out what exactly a black hole does. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't even sent a manned mission to Mars yet, so this sounds like it's something way down the line. I was going to say, until we get that figured out, I'm probably not going near any black holes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this, as I mentioned earlier, the way they came up with this theory, 
is all equation based. It's not it's theoretical physics. So this isn't even I guess factually based. It's all based on equations and possibilities. Right. So I mean it it still has a long way to go before we even think about a possible physical exploration of this. Alright, so that wraps up our episode on a few very strange science topics. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you would like to reach us to send feedback, suggestions, or to extend further discussion of this episode's topic, you can reach us at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also listen, comment, and download episodes at our website, strangematterspodcast.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we have a Facebook group and a Twitter that you can follow. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please take the time to rate us and review us. It helps promote the podcast, and it helps us attract new listeners. And before we sign out, Ethan has a little upcoming project in mind for the show that he wants to uh, talk about. Right, so uh, Sean, Eric, and I have been thinking about doing a paranormal episode involving ghosts and things like that. So we want feedback from you. Sean, Eric, and I will present various topics, but we like to hear things that involved you. Have y'all witnessed anything in the paranormal realm like that? If you have and want to send us these stories, and we will uh, present them on our podcast when we uh, do this subject matter, just what Sean mentioned earlier, get in touch with us, and we'll be sure to let your story be heard. That's right. So send in all of your spooky or scary or stories that you just can't understand. So we'll read them out, or if you would like to read them yourselves, just send us a little sound clip, and we'll include that in the episode. So that wraps up this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. Take it easy, everybody. See you later, guys. Bye.